Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Ons. Thanks ever so much for joining me. I'm back! Did you miss me? I went on vacation, and I've come back feeling totally refreshed. I traveled all over the place. I went to the kitchen and to the living room and to the bedroom and the bathroom. It was incredible. That's right, folks. You come here for fantastic discussions about art, and now you can stay for the quarantine dad jokes. Anyway, it was good to take some time off and just recenter my brain a little bit. And now we're going to jump right back into it with a super duper fantastic chat. I spoke with writer extraordinaire and all around human delight, Brian Moylan, about his love for poet, writer, and art critic Frank O'Hara, who is known for his deeply personal, urbane, often funny, and observational poetry, and also legendary playwright, Tennessee Williams, who needs no introduction. You know how I hate to blow my own horn, but this conversation is, quite frankly, fucking adorable, and I'm very confident that it's exactly the kind of content you need in your precious little ears during this time of darkness and uncertainty. You can thank me after you listen to it. But before we dig into that utter deliciousness, let's have a quick word about challenging ourselves with art. I love finding out about new stuff when it comes to art, and I also have an affinity for some weird shit. I love abstract films and fine art and music, stuff that makes you squint your brain a little bit. Art that you might not understand at first, if at all, like David Lynch movies. Just letting that absolute insanity wash over me is an enormous pleasure. But stuff like that can be an acquired taste. Sometimes you have to work a little bit and really force yourself to engage with art that's difficult or weird or just beyond the scope of your usual tastes. In the normal world, I'm all for pushing those boundaries and testing those limits. But in case you hadn't noticed, this is not the normal world. Newsflash. You heard it here first. Since everything has been turned on its head, We've all got to find comfort wherever we can. If challenging yourself makes you happy and provides you comfort, then you fucking go for it. Live your life. But I also want to encourage everyone to avoid torturing themselves with art right now. There's some pressure from people on the internet to carpe diem our way through the COVID nightmare and complete all the tasks you've ever told yourself you'd get around to someday. 
as well as finding new and exciting hobbies and activities, those internet people are dickheads. Even in the normal world, you shouldn't beat yourself up if you can't connect with challenging art. When I finished my first year in college, I came home for the summer and told myself that I would read a bunch of Tolstoy. And I did. Or at least I read some. But there came a point when I reread the same page of Anna Karenina for the tenth time that I put it down and said, Fuck this shit. Life's too short. I eventually read the rest of the book, but I'm so glad that I let myself shove it onto a bookshelf when I just wanted to read some trash. And if I'd never come back to it, that would have been totally cool too. No one can read every book or see every film, and even if they could, they're not going to enjoy everything they consume because taste is subjective. And all of that is true without taking a global fucking pandemic into account. So please, everyone, if challenging yourself brings you joy, then keep on as you are and read all of the classic Russian literature you can get your sweet little hands on. But if you're just barely coping or not really coping at all, like so many of us right now, then fuck that shit. Watch some absolute garbage on TV. Read some Dan Brown books. Turn off your brain in whatever way you can. We all need to suck every last drop of available pleasure out of this garbage situation. So give yourself a break and take it easy right now. Okay? All right. And now that I've got that off my chest, we can move on to the main event. Here comes my chat with Brian Moylan about Frank O'Hara and Tennessee Williams. Why don't we start with Frank O'Hara? Okay. Do you have a specific memory of being introduced to his work or did you discover it on your own? Um, I first read him in a uh, creative writing class I took my freshman year in college. And I don't remember what poem it was, but I read it. And that was about the time I started reading and writing a lot of poetry and just really like went in deep and started reading all the stuff and um, really got into it from there. So that's kind of how it started. Yeah. And I mean, was, was there something about his work that stood out to you in amongst all of the other poetry that you were reading? Yeah, it just seemed to really fit my own personal voice. And it was it's very urbane and kind of fast and wordy and verbal and conversational. And that like just really struck a chord in me that it wasn't the sort of very mannered, you know, certainly not like a John Donne, like formalist, old school kind of thing. And even it wasn't like a, some of that looser kind of poetry that's still very like ethereal or, you know, aiming at a certain profundity. It's just really kind of him going about his life and living in New York City and talking about the movies or, you know, celebrities or the things that he was into was a lot of things I was into, am into still. And, you know, people don't really see that as the subject for artwork often. And mm -hmm. so I was very impressed that he, you know, found a way of elevating like his everyday life and his sort of urbane sensibility and, you know, kind of, uh, appreciation of what some would call the more lower forms of art and creating great things out of that. Yeah. And th there was a, um, a piece in the Atlantic a few years ago about how his poetry feels like a precursor to Twitter almost that it's like yes. these short, sharp, really carefully constructed observations that are like really funny and pointed and 
tell a story. And I think it's a, a yeah. little bit reductive to compare it to Twitter because it's like, I, I, I think I think his work deserves more credit than that. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, t- Twitter is a, a medium that has a lot of uh, very funny, very keen observations on it as well. Um, yes. But, but I, I see the point in that it's like often a snapshot, like a small, smaller kind of thought that in the right way, like vibrates with profundity in a way that some of the best tweets can. Mm -hmm. But I think that when looking at Twitter as a whole, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think, you know, I would necessarily, yeah, like I get it, but also, you know, maybe disagree with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, When it's being thrown into a a mix that includes things like, you know, Obama created the coronavirus. I think um, we have to be careful about drawing those comparisons. Or like, (laughs) kill yourself, you fucking slut. You know, yeah. 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 No, it's not that kind of Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I I mean, I think it's maybe like the happy medium between that kind of short, sharp, uh, uh, keen observation and... Uh, a great tradition of uh, that kind of observation coming through in prose and poetry and, you know, thinking of people like Oscar Wilde and Dorothy Parker. um, But that sort of tradition, but using really contemporary themes. And even now, the stuff that he talks about, even if the references to celebrities or the specific places that he's going to, if those people have died and are are not in the public eye or the places don't exist anymore, you still understand the references and can apply them to our world. Yes. Yeah. And and I think that it, it was really sort of the start of things that we would become more and more obsessed with. Um, about like pop culture and things like that. And, you know, and, and I think it points to the universality of some of those experiences where, like you said, the, you know, um, you know, people always say like, oh, the Kardashians are the end of society or whatever. And it's like, if you think about it, there have been a Kardashians every generation and every generation, everyone's been saying it's, you know, going to be the end of society. And, right. and, and, you know, I, I think it points to that that way of, of looking at the world is all these things happen before they're all going to happen again. And we're going to relate to them in similar ways. And, and I think that the Kardashians are the end of the world. People are very stupid and short-sighted personally, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you know, (laughs) like guys, we'll, we'll, you know, we made it through Paris Hilton. We'll make it through the Kardashians. We'll make it through whatever weird YouTuber is the next Kardashians. And, you know, we'll all be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think definitely in the modern era and I'm including like, you know, the, from the beginning of uh, the 20th century there, the idea of celebrity as we know it has been around in in some shape or form, but even throughout history, uh, this, this idea of, you know, elevating certain people and especially artists or, you know, people who are artist adjacent (laughs) being in the public eye and um, being in the public consciousness and talked about by everyone certainly has, has always happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also I, you know, there's that, this kind of macro cosmic version of looking at his work where you can apply it to like all pop culture, all celebrity, all, observations about the world around us and then a microcosmic version that's very specific talking about New York and Mm -hmm. gay life in New York. And I was also struck by that, that it's like, this is 
writing that, you know, it's uh, 60 years old, maybe 70 years old, and still feels like the New York that I know now. Um, and yes, the way that he talks absolutely. about like hanging out with his friends or the just casual interactions he has with people or the way that he goes about his day feels, I mean, not the New York that I know right now, obviously, but, um, yeah. you know, New York in, in the normal world where people are free to, um, uh, you know, go outside of their homes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and it reminds me of like, if you read, uh, Andrew Holland's dancer from the dance, which is about like gay life in New York and, um, you know, particularly about fire Island where, you know, when I lived in New York, I, I went to, you know, I had to share house in fire Island every summer and it, it's, pretty much exactly the same, but also different in that, you know, gay rights and gay life has, has advanced so much since the seventies when it was written, but also at the same token, you know, so many of the rituals and so many of the dynamics are still the same. And the same with, you know, Frank O'Hara, you know, he was died on fire Island. It was out there and yeah. And it's like, though his gay life was very different than mine. It also shows how similar it is to mine was to mine um and i think that was definitely something about him that i really connected with and also i think that you know part uh so when they redid the uh museum of modern art they there's now a room dedicated to frank o'hara who had worked at the museum and um you know his book lunch poems is named because he wrote them during his lunch breaks at the museum and stuff and he talks about it in his famous poem day that lady died like working at the museum and stuff and um so now they have a room dedicated to him not just with his poems but you know the designs for his books and how that was influenced and portraits of him by the artists he hung out with and the other things he inspired and sort of shows him as part of a sort of artistic community that existed, you know, mainly of gay people that were somewhat underground that I find, you know, really inspiring and also similar to my own experiences of just, you know, being in New York and being friends with other people in media or the arts or film or television or whatever, and how that kind of all like vibrates off of each other and, and is interconnected in some ways and you're sort of inspiring each other's works of art, things like that. So yeah, I, I had a, a very emotional moment in the museum. I didn't cry, but I could have. No, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and I think you feel that in his work that, yeah. you know, that, that he was, his, his social orbit um, included so many other people who are important culturally and were important uh, to New York at that time and have continued to be important culturally that in a way it reminds me of artists like, I don't know, Andy Warhol or somebody like that, where it was like his work was so interconnected with his, the the, the other people in his life and they were, uh, you know, popped up in his work constantly so that it acts as this kind of, in addition to just being able to, engage with it as art without having to have too much idea of what the the historical and social context was, that it's also yeah. this kind of historical record of that time period. And yeah, I guess ha- having other talented, uh, important, famous friends means that you, you become part of this, like you said, it's like a scene. It's a, um, yeah. a, a snapshot of that moment in time. Yeah. How can we find more artistic, famous friends? 
Yeah, Adam. What um, I mean, that I feel like that is the real takeaway from this. Be mm-hmm. more friend. Be friends with more famous people. Yeah, and that I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up because it really is the crux of the matter. That's that's why I wanted to talk to you today is because this is a call to action to anybody who's listening. If you have famous friends, just send them our way. Right. And um, I'm just gonna DM the Rock on Instagram and like <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's you know the ticket that I've always needed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think we're onto something. Yeah. <sighs> um, but there's there's also something as a writer, you know, there I kind of steal from Frank O'Hara on a fairly regular basis. Uh, you know, speaking of which, it's it, we'll pretend like he's my famous friend. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he does this thing with shifts in tone that are almost like, like pivots where, you know, his, my favorite of his poem is untitled, but it's um, Lana Turner has collapsed and it kind of starts that way. You know, says Lana Turner's collapsed and he's talking about running around New York and the weather's awful and he's trying to get somewhere. And then all of a sudden he sees the headline in the paper and says Lana Turner has collapsed. And then it just like turns, like all of a sudden it's like everything on like a language uh, level, like it just like slows down, and and the he starts contemplating what this means about her, and it's kind of this in, insight into you know his mind thinking, and then it, it starts to speed up again slowly, and then it's you know it ends on the same sort of frenzy where it started, and that's something I like to use a lot when writing things where you kind of take the direction you're going or the speed at which you're going and, and just kind of change it or go in a new direction or, or really jar the reader into understanding what you're trying to get across by totally reversing the trajectory that you have been on before that. So right. um, thanks, Frank O'Hara. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's another interesting thing about his work is the structure of his poetry, you know, he said things about uh, kind of rejecting the elitism of the poetry establishment and that, you know, when he'd see people talking about how uh, rhyme scheme and meter and, you know, structuring your poems in a traditional way that meets certain standards was just not important to him. And it was about the message and speaking, using his experience. And I think it it makes it more interesting to have those variances. But it also, to me, you know, I think poetry is one of those art forms like uh, classical music or even fine art where it is accessible to everyone, but there can, can be, it's not, you know, universal, but there can be this kind of elitism that says to really understand this art form, you have to have this background. You have to understand the structure. You have to understand the history. And if you don't meet that threshold, you know, if you find that, that, that understanding is a barrier to your engagement with it, that you're not really ever going to be able to understand it. And his work to me feels like kind of a rejection of that, that it's like, no, it's for everyone. It doesn't need to be that you adhere to this really strict idea of what this can be. It's just another form of writing and I can choose to do it in whatever I want, in whatever way I want to. And he was very successful at it. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, there is a lot of scariness to a lot of poetry for people where it's like, oh, I'm not going to get it or this is too hard or whatever. And he's definitely refuting that, but it's also at the same time, not junk food that there, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is a lot of really good stuff in there. And I think it just shows it, but it's also, I don't want to say mundane, 
But, but, you know, it is about kind of the everyday, a lot of it is about everyday things or emotions or going to a party or, you know, meeting someone new or, you know, talking about the movies, things, things that are a little bit more everyday, but it shows you how much of a profound impact those things can have on you and that they do have on us. I think, you know, a lot of people take for granted. Yeah. And like whatever rejection of structure is there. He, it's not, or whatever reje- rejection of traditional structure. I, it's not to say that there isn't any structure there. It's definitely still right. poetry, and it feels it moves you in the way that any other poetry does. And saying, I, I think that's also another thing that I've noticed is this idea sometimes that the when people talk about culture in terms of class or in terms of high mm-hmm. and low uh, status for culture, that um, if the subject matter isn't worthy if you're talking about movie stars if you're talking about things that are like accessible to everyone that are pop cultural icons whatever that it isn't as worthy as if you are pontificating about you know the beauty of a rose or whatever it is that right um is deemed to be high culture and that uh to me this also kind of blurs the lines between those two things that it's like of course it's poetry and it feels you know it's beautiful writing it's it's skilled writing but he's just talking about things that are uh, uh more of an everyday experience and very contemporary to him i wish that frank o'hara was still alive so he could write a poem about candy crush <laughs> <laughs> you know just like oh yeah we all get it we've all played it we all know it you know yeah. what is there to be said frank o'hara about Candy Crush. Why aren't there more cell phones and poems? I don't know. Yeah. We should figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Well, maybe. Maybe yeah. The Rock knows. Maybe he'll DM me the answer. Yes. I feel like actually The Rock is a, an obvious successor to Frank O'Hara. So maybe he'll write the Candy Crush poem. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Very similar. It's yeah. definitely of a very similar shape yeah. physically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, so, uh, other, other gays who, uh, who, who write, was that a smooth transition? Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, Tennessee Williams. Yeah. Um, I'm a big Tennessee Williams fan. Yeah. Do you, did you have a, a moment of getting into him? He's a little more, uh, uh, ubiquitous. Um, you know, I yeah. think. Um, we read one of something he wrote in high school. I don't remember what it was, but then I wrote a paper about like gay people and Tennessee Williams and gay stuff. And it made my senior year English teacher very uh, unhappy. Uh, (laughs) And so, yeah, but I've always been a fan. And then, you know, and then since then, I've seen lots of productions of his work, you know, whenever I can and, and read a lot more of it. Uh, there's a there was a great book that came out last year called Leading Men that sort of uh, imagination of his relationship uh, with a lover of his that inspired Rose Tattoo and some other things. So I've really gotten into a lot of Tennessee Williams, but but the the way that he has impacted me the most is I write actually a lot of recaps of Real Housewives episodes <laughs> and um, you know try to bring. You know, and and this comes with Frank O'Hara too, like bring a sort of highbrow literary way of looking at these episodes, you know, examining them like they are kind of high art and, you know, looking at the women and what they do and, and analyzing them and, and, you know, writing about them eloquently and interestingly. 
And, you know, the best of them, I always say, are like Tennessee Williams characters in that they're a little bit delusional. <laughs> they're really messy. They have a lot of psychological damage, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Like a Blanche Dubois, mm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think that the thing that has really aided me in writing about these things and analyzing them is something that I get from Tennessee Williams, which is that as messed up as these people are, as psychologically scarred and hard up as they might be, that there's always a humanity. There's always something redeemable. They're always, you know, reacting to, to something both internal and external that has created these, uh, you know, mutated or mangled personalities, as it were. And and that's something I really try to bring with me to Real Housewives scholarship it is looking at these women who, you know, many would see as character caricatures and and living the, their crazy lives for everybody and and a naked pursuit of fame and really look for what makes them human and what drives them and the factors that have maybe shaped them to this point of alcoholic frenzy that uh, we all enjoy week in and week out on The Real Housewives. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is not news. I think everybody uh, knows this about Tennessee Williams, but that he had a lot of focus on uh, female characters in his work and not always, but uh, many times were of a type that it was, you know, this kind of Southern, either upper class or maybe someone who'd fallen from the upper class. Someone who comes from kind of a, um, you know, sophisticated society background. Um, And as you said, with Real Housewives, where it's like the, the characters could be perceived as dipping into caricature or being a, a stock character version of, of right. what a, a Southern woman was, but he was really able to get to the humanity of those characters to, to find the reality that to, um, it, you know, show, show their behavior, show their lives in a way that you could still relate to, even in the midst of all this melodrama. And I think that, right. um, that that's why the, the comparison to Real Housewives is so apt that it's like, of course, there are heightened things about it. Of course, there are things that are supposed to be entertaining and supposed to be ridiculous, but it's also right. real people. And even if their lives are being modified to uh, entertain us, they're still... Yeah. Uh, real situations with people who are actually in their lives and yeah, exposing humanity, I think is uh, uh, definitely a commonality there. What do you think it is about homosexuals and uh, a love of these types of women, whether they be Tennessee Williams characters or real housewives? I think in some ways with Tennessee Williams, he was using those characters as a surrogate for himself. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, so some of the stuff he also, his, his plays had these, uh, Southern bell kind of uh, damaged, you know, I see, I don't know. I don't know. That, I don't know if that's fair. A, a lot of them were very strong people as well, but, um, right. the, the, uh, just people, very complicated people who had a lot of, societal pressure who were, you know, sometimes dealing with drug and alcohol dependency, who'd been abused by men in their life, all of those kinds of things. And I think that particular kind of character that 
gay people um, maybe identify with being the underdog, with being misunderstood, with having to sort of fight for your position in, in the world. And at the time when Tennessee Williams was writing, of course, it was like a completely different world where gay, gay people weren't allowed to live openly at all. And so when he had gay characters in his plays, for the vast majority of the time, it was coded or implied yeah. and um, nothing explicit. And um, yeah, so may- maybe that's got something to do with it. What do you think? I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty good answer. I think that there's also, I don't know, I think if you think about those characters and camp and you know my own sensibilities like I've always drawn a bit to the ridiculous Mm. and I think that it's kind of like growing up in a in a society where you're told in general that there's something wrong with you or there's something you know that you're broken in some way and you know you can either take that on or you can reject that and say like okay what's maybe there's not something wrong with me. Maybe there's something wrong with you. And I think that that lends itself to uh, courting of the ridiculousness of, mm-hmm. of life and saying like, this is all fucking bullshit. It's all crazy. It's all made up. And so the things that show me that the most are the things that I like the most. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a key difference between Tennessee Williams work and Real Housewives is that at least when he was writing them, I don't think he Tennessee Williams considered his work to be uh he he wasn't trying to give the world examples of ridiculousness he wasn't he didn't necessarily see the humor in his own work um or yes fair the, the stuff that was uh that we now see as this kind of high camp um wasn't necessarily right. intended to be that and I think uh Real Housewives in 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 some ways has a little bit better sense of itself and it knows that there are elements that are completely ridiculous and over the top. Um, and that the balance between the ridiculous and the grounded, um, are a bit more explicit than they are in Tennessee Williams work. Yeah. But I I do think you see like kind of an outrageousness in the sort of melodrama that you don't see in people like, you know, an Ibsen or a Strindberg Mm. or things that are a lot more, you know, like kitchen sinky realisticness, um, you know, and and that that liking, uh, you know, I think of suddenly last summer where it ends, you know, with this kind of like insane, almost insane frenzy, you know, and and um, yeah, mm-hmm. so maybe that's not out uh, ridiculous, but it's sort of, or outlandish, but it is like very heightened in a way that you see with the quote unquote real life portrayals in uh, my beloved real housewives. Yeah. And I guess maybe what do you think? (laughs) Do who do you think would be a better guest judge on RuPaul's drag race, Frank O'Hara or Tennessee Williams? Uh, probably maybe, maybe Frank O'Hara, because I think he was, uh, more conscious of intentionally trying to be funny. And I think Tennessee Williams had a sense of the ridiculous, but it was still ridiculousness in a serious context. Not the intention wasn't to make people laugh. And yes, Frank O'Hara that knew true. that he was trying to make people laugh. Um, and I yes. think also drag race loves a zingy one-liner and um, 
you know, I think Tennessee Williams was capable of that. I think uh, Frank O'Hara cornered the market. Yes, very all an entirely fair assessment. I will now use that as my own without giving you any credit. Thank you very much. Perfect. It's all yours. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes they have two guest judges on uh, Drag Race, so maybe they could both do That's it. That's true. The ghosts of both. Yeah, yeah. Um, we just need to figure out. So, okay, it, it's a little bit of a laundry list now. We need to resurrect both Frank O'Hara and uh, Tennessee Williams so they can be on Drag Race and uh, convince The Rock to be our friend and have him uh, write poetry. I mean, the things we have to do, good thing we have nothing but time these days. I know. And I, like, I, I think it really is important to have small achievable goals that you can set aside each day and i I mean i think (laughs) right this is this is what we're doing (laughs) Uh, absolutely (laughs) yeah Uh, um that feels like a a perfect time to uh conclude this discussion i feel immensely satisfied that was uh good that was a good overview of these two uh two kind gentlemen um what about you if people want to know what's going on with you and be able to keep track of your writing and all that is social media the best way to go about that um yeah i'm on all social media platforms at brian with an i j moylan m-o-y-l-a-n and yeah and um i write uh, most of these days i'm recapping a lot of shows for new york magazine and vulture.com so you can um, check me out there. Wonderful. Um, great. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. I, uh, I, I really appreciate you making time for me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. All right. Take care. Bye. See, what did I tell you? A complete and unadulterated delight. Thanks again to Brian for chatting with me. Follow him on social media and read his writing because he's smart and funny. Okay, a few little recommendations. First off, a couple of other podcasts to check out. What? Plugging the competition? Yes, it's true. The first is Wind of Change, which is an investigative series based on a rumor that the song Wind of Change by the Scorpions was written by the CIA as pro-democratic propaganda after the fall of both the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall. If you listen to any Crooked Media podcast, you'll know about this because they co-produced it and they are promoting the fuck out of it. In addition to the central story, there's a lot of background about the relationship between art and government organizations and the way that art is used to affect policy and change public opinion. Interesting! I've also been listening to Rabbit Hole, which is a New York Times podcast about the effect the internet has had on shaping the way we view the world. There's a lot of stuff in it about YouTube being used as a tool for right-wing indoctrination, so it's not exactly the easygoing and frivolous art that I advocated for at the beginning of this episode. But if you're looking for some heavier shit to dig into, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And lastly, it was Stevie Wonder's 70th birthday last week, and I love him so much, so I wanted to acknowledge him in some way. So instead of checking out the more obvious, omnipresent Stevie Wonder back catalog, I think you should seek out a relatively underappreciated chapter in his history, and that's the soundtrack to Spike Lee's 1991 film Jungle Fever. Now, make no mistake, this has some really cheesy shit on it. Some painfully early 90s production, which I love. But there are also some certified classics. One of my favorite Stevie Wonder songs is on that album. It's called Make Sure You're Sure. 
If you can't commit to an entire album, at least listen to that one song because it's incredible. Okay, great. And I think that's enough for now, don't you? As always, please follow me on social media at Spark Parade. Please rate and review the show and tell everyone you know about it. And then just live your life. Have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Wash those motherfucking hands. And I'll be back with more next Wednesday. Until next time. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.